In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. Proscenium, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, and welcome to episode 358. This week on the show, Andrew Scoville, the director of Theater of the Mind, which opens next week in Denver under the auspices of the Denver Center for the Performing Arts Off Center program, is here to talk about the show. And our Venice immersive coverage continues with Celine Tricart, creator of the VR experience Fight Back, which explores the issue of gender-based violence and gives participants a taste of the self-defense techniques they can use to, well, fight back. Plus, an update on the Denver Immersive Gathering during the show wrap-up. Got some fun news there. All this brought to you by our Patreon backers at patreon.com slash noproscenium. Our latest backers are Lynn Gaza and an anonymous backer. Our goals are three new backers each week. So if someone can join today, that'd be great. Uh, This spooky season, in order to get us ready for 2023, if you can... Hit up patreon.com slash or if you're already a backer or can't commit financially, help spread the word about our work, whether it's the review rundown uh, or this podcast or any of the stuff we make, spreading on social media really helps. We need your help one way or another to keep doing what we do, and we're so thankful for those who do help like our sustaining backers Ari Hurstan, Chris Woolman, Samantha Davison, Eric Shamlin, Elaine, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentes, David Bassick, Richard Ayers, Lonnie Hanson, Mark Baltazar, Sidney Guillory, and Jan Budman. Thank you all for keeping us going. And with that, we're going to get into this week's interviews. Well, this is one we've been looking forward to for a while. Andrew Scoville, who is the director of Theater of the Mind, which is opening up at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. Okay, not physically, technically, but as part of the Denver Center for the Performing Arts off-center program. This is the show that is co-created by David Byrne. Yes, that David Byrne and Mala Gonkar. Uh, there was like a version of the show that existed before, but this is all new, but but born from the same seed, which is something I wasn't going to say right now, but then I did because the caffeine's working. Andrew, hello. <laughs> hello, Noah. How are you? Oh, just living the note-free life. Um, <laughs> Andrew, you'll notice that I did not try to describe the show because I think I still don't know entirely what the show is. So tell us, uh, what are people allowed to know before going in about Theater of the Mind? Yeah, well, I think like a lot of work of this kind, part of the uh, allure and intrigue is the mystery that we're able to create around it. So we've been working hard to let it be surprising for audiences when they come. But what I can tell you is that this is a um, multi-room experience that recreates conditions necessary for actual neurological and perceptual phenomena to occur. So the interactive and immersive aspects of the show We'll have audiences um, actually experiencing some of this phenomena firsthand for themselves. And it will be guided by an actor who's layering in narrative story elements to, to deepen and personalize some of the science along the way. So a, a real-time exploration of scientific principles that work in the brain is kind of what I'm picking up on what you're that's, laying down here. Yeah? That's right. They okay. are, the experiments are intended to challenge our sense of self, our sense of identity by, by shaking up what we assume to be true through uh, our perceptions. Well, that sounds like my idea of a good time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which, which I said confidently knowing fully the sort of ethereal nature of, of what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, but 
And that's one of the interesting things about immersive work as a whole is just that it plays with perception or, or when it's pretty successful, successful, it often plays with perception or like makes us question the angle with which we're, we're, we're coming at things. Um, how did you wind up being on, on this iteration of the project? What's, what's the origin story here? And, and I think this is something that's been in the work since pre pandemic, like even this edition of it. Absolutely. Um, I've been involved in the project since about 2018 uh, when I, I knew David from uh, Here Lies Love. I was the associate director on that show, which happened at the Public Theater and the National Theater in London and Seattle Rep. And so I was well, working creatively with David um, on that show as Alex Timber's associate. And so we, we started our relationship there. And then uh, between that project and this one, I spent a lot of time in pursuit of unconventional theatrical experiences that use science as a starting point or as a jumping off point. That's a passion of mine that I try to pursue whenever someone is asking me, you know, but what is it that you want to be working on? Or, or what, what is the kind of thing that really gets you going? And for me, it's about using science as source material and the stories that are embedded in there and using that as a framework to try to understand the human experience is just the way that I'm, I feel really connected and plugged in. So I, in a way, this is like a huge confluence of so many of my interests. And I think some of the things that I had done along the way, it, it just made sense at the time when I met with David and Mala about the project that I had experience doing these sort of larger scale immersive works, but also that uh, I, I, I'm really in pursuit of, of science and, and understanding from that lens. So it just, it felt, it felt like a real, a real nice fit at just the right moment. Do, do you feel like the immersive and experiential toolkit lets you dig into the scientific themes more than, than a, you know, traditional performance or proscenium type work does? I think so. I think that what I, what I love about that entry point is that it really leads with questions. I mm. think that uh, to me, the goal is always to bring science from a sort of answer-based, factual, cold, hard, and fast space into a more human, exploratory, emotional space. And I think that bringing, bringing it into storytelling in general is, is really exciting, though the actual things that we're doing in theater of the mind are ripe for this sort of immersive world because they are full, they're fully participatory. It's a, it's something that you need to be in the right condition to experience. And so there's something really rewarding about leading an audience to experience something that it would be difficult to do on your own. If you, if, if you weren't guided in just the right way to get just the right effect. Maybe dig into that a little bit there. I mean, what, what do you find yourself doing to prime people for effects? I mean, without, you know, giving away the special effects of it, but, but, but that, that entire approach, it's so, I mean, they're, they're, well, I don't, I don't want to overanalyze it because uh, I could start riffing, but, but I'm curious sure. with your own approach on, on that, that need to keep the audiences, the participants' perspective in mind, because you, you really are playing with them as kind of the canvas more so than the staging itself is. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been really interesting directorially because the the actors need to balance so much when they're executing the show. And the, the success of the experiment is not only dictated by the, the clarity of the ask, what we're, what we're asking the audience to do at any given moment, but it's also with the connection that the actor is able to make with audience members throughout the experience that I feel like that sort of openness that they approach each moment with, the audience approaches each moment with, that the actor is able to um, create in the space between themselves and the audience member. That's that openness and that intrigue and curiosity 
mixed with the very specific requirements of the um, experiment is actually what makes those moments shine. So it's from an immersive toolbox, you know, really pursuing that that deep audience connection, that that sort of authentic conversation between audience and actor. Um, it fits really nicely into the toolbox and the the environment, what the science requires of the environment, the 360 nature of it is also just fits very nicely into immersive work because audiences at this point are expecting to walk into something that is all consuming and that covers every wall. So we're sort of able to tap into both of those um, tenets of this work, I think in a really exciting way. I'm going to chase both those lines in a second. I'm going to start with the connection. Is that something you find yourself casting for, or, or is that something that can be those abilities developed in the actors through process? I definitely was casting for it, for an ability to make a instant or nearly instant and um, meaningful connection with, with somebody. Uh, it was something I was looking for from jump, and that didn't always that didn't always mean that the actor had the most amount of immersive work. We certainly have actors for whom this is their first immersive project, and so there's been a learning curve there. But every everybody in the room is incredibly uh, um, equipped to make those connections quickly. And so while we've been finessing that, I would say it's true that each actor brought that to the table from jump. You've worked on some you know, big IP immersive stuff and, and, and other large scale projects. I'm wondering if you're seeing, and when you mentioned like, you know, the audience coming into the 360 environment and like they're sort of expecting to kind of like you know, be, be surrounded by something. Have you seen audiences get used to this Form. I think there's a lot of folks, you know, particularly outside of the two coastal wings who sort of feel like, oh, immersive is so strange and will people understand it and can they do it? Uh, you've had a lot of people through your stuff now. Is that how you're finding audiences or, or then he shrugs? Yeah. Um, I would say that I am finding that audiences definitely come and correct me if I'm not picking up on, on the exact question. No, no, I, think, I can already tell you are. So I, I can tell that audiences come with a certain expectation around immersive work and what, what it is and what the game of it is. And there's, there are expectations that there will be really lush environments and there are expectations that there will be something to solve. Um, we are, and in a way, theater of the mind as an immersive experience is needing to take a moment to onboard the audience in, in a way that is unique, I think, because this is, not in, this is not a choose your own adventure. This is not an open every drawer, open every door and try to put the pieces together. This experience is actually most uh, enjoyable when you follow the instructions as given, mm. and when you allow yourself, you give over to the guide as, tr as a true guide, as someone who is there to help you access all of the neat stuff that we have to show you. And so it's been interesting to have people come in and, and really want to interact with a space in a way that they are pursuing the narrative. And we are, we're actually very intentionally guiding the audience through the experiments and the narrative in a way that is, uh, I think is unique in a lot of this work. Um, there is a, there is a clear order and there is a clear, there are clear steps within each room that you go in that allow the experience to sing. So it's been mm. interesting as we invite audience in, you know, their, um, I can hear, even when I'm waiting in the lobby to go in, I can hear them talk about um, what, like, 
every single thing that the front of house staff says in terms of the onboarding speech that they give, really unpacking it and trying to find the mystery and the puzzle inside of it. When really, really the best, the best way to the most um, robust theater of the mind experience is to give yourself over to the, to the directions of, of the actor. That moment when an immersive piece meets contact with the audience, it's like, you know, no plans arise contact with the enemy. <laughs> I, I can, I can sense almost like a, a tension there and that, you know, you get this like, I can imagine particularly like a big puzzling crowd coming in and being like, okay, well, like, okay, they just said this, but that must not be true. Let's try and reverse engineer it. Um, how are you finding, uh, how are you finding the way to settle everyone down and make sure it's not just like a bunch of rambunctious, you know, junior high school kids uh, in adult bodies uh, running around and, and smashing through delicately constructed scientific experiments? Because I got to admit, like, I'm... I have bad luck with science experiments and <laughs> makes me wonder like, Oh, would I just break everything? No, you won't break everything. Um, and okay. we certainly, we certainly will take all of the, um, we'll certainly take your rambunctious energy that is in pursuit of, uh, curiosity about the brain and about identity. We'll take all that. But there is like any, like anything approached scientifically, there is, there are conditions that must be met in order for the stuff to work. And mm. so it is, it's really important that the, that the actors feel empowered and feel comfortable got leading the audience through all of this stuff. And so I, I think we, we opened up test audiences in this process way earlier than I'm used to doing. And I think for a second, that was that was hard because the actors were just getting acclimated to the thing, the the, the incredibly robust and complex technology system around the project was just getting you know to a state where we could run through the show. It essentially was not in any typical sense ready for it to be shared with an audience. However, all of the work that I just mentioned has to actually be worked out with the audience there. So there was really no other way to do it than to invite them before we were ready. And I think at this stage in the process, as we're looking towards our opening, we're grateful for that time. In the moment, it was, it was, certainly, um, it was certainly something that all of us were, were feeling you know, vulnerable by, by inviting them in before, before it's ready. And, and when you do that, when you have a test audience period it's hard to feel like as soon as you get to previews, you're not like full, you're not like you should be ready to open. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. well, no, now we're, now we're in the preview phase and we have to really defend all of our own creative processes within that because it becomes difficult to not feel like you're all of a sudden elevating to like a finished state, to a state where there needs to be polished. But, um, you know, we had, we had to take the road of, of inviting audience in really early in order for us to get there. So I'm grateful for it. I think like as much as a lot of this kind of immersive work benefits from bringing audience in super early, and it's not often that we have the luxury to do that. And certainly it's not often that I feel the kind of support that I felt from DCPA at that time of continuing to, to defend the process, even as we opened it up. So that's been something that I, I've been super grateful for. Do you feel like I've given the opportunity to bring audience that in that early, you, you do it again or... Definitely, yes. What keeps you working in this form? Is it just the opportunities are presenting themselves or is there something that draws you to working in immersive? Because there's there's other avenues. You know, you've 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 worked on Broadway, you've you've done other types of projects. Is there something that keeps you coming back to to this experiential form? It feels very intrinsic to the mode of storytelling I've always been interested in. Even the stuff that I've done that, um, you know, on, on, on at glance could appear to be uh, more traditional. I've, I've always been in pursuit of a unique relationship to the audience. And I think before all of this, um, before immersive work really exploded, 
you know, I was still more attracted to a show where people are not seated, for example, or where they move from location to location. So I, I do feel like I'm, I'm always curious. And as someone that lives in New York City, you know, I'm, I'm always looking around being like, oh, man, there would be there's so many opportunities here for work to sort of just like emerge or to bring this work to places that aren't just in the theater, whether it's at museums or parks. And so I find, I find that the accessibility of this style of work is something I'm really excited about. And some of the most exciting moments for me have been when I bring work that I feel like in a, in a typical theater setup would be looked at a certain way or be evaluated in a certain way. When I bring that same kind of work somewhere like a park or a theater, there's a, or a, a park or a museum or something, there's something um, about the, the delight in the audience, the unexpectedness of it all that elevates the work to a, to a different level. There's like an expectation or maybe an openness against expectation in those kinds of environments, in that kind of relationship between the, the show and the audience that um, I find to be really exciting and I actually feel like is the, the place for to really make an, an impact on, on somebody, whether that's like looking at something a different way or their imagination opening up into a new area of interest that they didn't, that they didn't have before, um, making connection with a group of people when they really needed to feel that. I just feel like being inside of it creates space for that in a way that um, more traditional work uh, does not, in my opinion. So I, in a way, I feel, I've always, I guess I've always feel drawn to it. And I also feel like in this increasingly um, digital world where people can put on a headset and be anywhere, um, there's an element of connection to immersive work that you step inside of that um, I think is only going to, the, the need and the desire for it is only going to increase as things get sort of more, um, more readily available in a digital and uh, way. That this sort of it, the experience being really actually happening around you with actual other people is only going to become more more magical, in my opinion. You've had the experience now of, of producing this work uh, for the DCPA or under the DCPA. Uh, you you've done work on some like the the big activation stuff like you you did I think one of the money heists that uh, that happened uh, for, for Netflix. How are you finding these arts institutions and these kind of you know, big corporate entities viewing the the immersive work? Are, are are they are they more interested in it now than they were before? Did the the pandemic was such a pause on so many things? It's I'm, I'm always trying to get a sense of how people are, are, are seeing, you know, the, the levels of institutional support for this, whether it's, whether it's fleeting or, or something that feels like it's growing. That's a good question. And I also, I feel like within that question that the DCPA and specifically off center and um, Charlie Miller as, as the, um, you know, leader in that, in that space is, isn't in a, isn't a class of its own. Like I've never, I've never worked in an environment where the sort of main, um, the main tenants of this kind of work are really, uh, known and held and understood on both a deep business level and also at a creative level. And so architecting a process for this huge show in collaboration with the DCPA was just, there was more understanding there uh, that I was able to uh, work with, which was incredible. And I think that speaks to the, the community that Off Center has built and the, the history of work and the scale of that work that they've done in the past. And there, it's really unbelievable to work with a group of, of artists who um, are both skilled at like putting up a huge main stage in a typical proscenium theater and also are able to create and craft things that are expected to be viewed, you know, 
within within inches of the audience's mm. eyes. So I've the 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 interest and the support that I've experienced here in Denver is like is truly um, in a class of its own, and the the willingness of the and the, the talent of the artists is um, yeah, it's really quite incredible. And I, I think it's I sort of feel like it's in it's in its own own class over here, in my experience. That's actually, it, while well, it's on one level like disappointing for like the rest of the country, it's also really <laughs> good to hear that like there's there's this institution, there's this entity that is that is building to that standard, that is that is working that standard. Because I mean, I think we both know like it varies wildly across the country like you can get into conversations with people in the arts world or in, or in the entertainment world who barely know that this stuff exists and you get other people who've been you know giant fans for a long time but the number of people who know how to execute well uh we we've loaded into school buses before mm. um so mm-hmm. and and we'll load into school buses again until we can get a second school bus and more people mm-hmm. <laughs> but um uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really glad that the show is, is coming around. I'm, and I'm really interested in the fact that Denver, we just had Charlie on the show a couple of weeks ago and, and that the DCPA is elevated off center to its own pillar, uh, is also a really exciting development and, and yeah. maybe just maybe others will follow suit. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's I think it's um, to all of our benefit that, that that's happened over here. And I think, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully the theater is uh, rewarded in, in whatever metric is important to them in, in a way that uh, validates this work and and encourages other to take these kinds of risks in the future. All right. Well, Andrew, I know you're in previews right now. You've got a bazillion things I'm sure to do other than yabber with me, but I'm so grateful you took some time to talk with us today about the show. Thanks. No, I really appreciate it. This was a a privilege for me. Thanks. Celine Tricart is the acclaimed director of the VR experience The Key, which made its festival debut at Tribeca in 2019. This year, she's back with another VR piece, making its bow at the Venice Biennial's Venice Immersive Program, which runs concurrently with the famed film festival. That work is Fight Back, an introduction to self-defense techniques as an answer to gender-based violence, which blends physicality, psychology, and history into a potent VR experience. Celine, thanks for being back with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's always good to get a chance to talk to you. So it's uh, I'm I'm happy about this. And one day we'll get to meet in person. I swear. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, we we we're kind of past that notion of being in the same physical space as other humans, you know. <laughs> oh, almost. But you're in Venice right now. How can you say that? You've been there. You've been there in the in the center of the entertainment world right now. So I took a crack uh, at at describing fight back. But how do you, how do you describe this latest piece of yours? Yeah, no, I think you did a pretty good job at at that. Um, yeah, fight back VR is a a 40 minute long um, experience uh, that we have uh, crafted uh, for a specific audience, although it is open to anyone. Um, The specific audience that we have in mind is uh, women, uh, but also teenagers and anybody who is in a certain position of vulnerability, because the piece is about physical empowerment um, and uh, with that in mind, we have crafted that uh, journey that has a meta- metaphorical approach, uh, very similar to my past work, uh, The Key. And throughout the experience, you get to learn certain gesture and, and liberate uh, sisters from your constellation, because in this metaphorical world, you play the role of a newborn star in a universe where stars are being captured by shadows uh, who are feeding off their light. 
So you go on this journey to liberate your constellation from the shadows and each of your sister will teach you a new skill as you uh, liberate them. And of course, at the end, the, it is revealed that those gestures that you've been using throughout the experience are basic gesture of empowerment, self-defense, um, that you have developed some kind of muscle memory over the course of the experience and you're encouraged to continue your training. And it is also revealed the true identity of uh, your sisters, the star that you've liberated. So the key, your, your last work was inspired by the experience of, of refugees. Um, what was the spark for Fight Back? The spike for Fight Back actually was when I went to Iraq in 2017 to make a 360-degree documentary about the Sun Ladies, uh, which were Yazidi women who were captured by ISIS and sold as sex slave and liberated themselves or escaped and decided to join the Kurdistan army to, to fight back and, and liberate their sisters. So that documentary, uh, The Sun Ladies, premiered at Sundance in 2018. But when I came back from Iraq in 17, uh, from the front line, I was so moved and I was so impressed by the, the, the Sun Ladies, those Yazidi women. They literally changed my life. Uh, I can say that. And, uh, it, it, and the one thing that I noticed in Iraq that was really strange is that I interviewed the Sun Ladies who were uh, fighting on the front line and risking their life. And then I went to refugee camp and interviewed uh, other Yazidi women. And I noticed a big difference between the two. I noticed that the Sun Ladies seemed to be healing and recovering faster and better than uh, from the trauma that they've, they've, they've survived uh, versus uh, the woman in refugee camp. And I tried to understand why. And that's what started my research into physical empowerment, the act of fighting back, and that um, how it affects your mental health and how it affects the way you see your body and how you behave in the world. So that was actually a very long time ago. It took five years to bring that idea to life. Uh, but it was also a journey of, of me finding how to tell the story and in, in, in using which medium and which uh, language. When did you know you wanted to not just tell the story, but have those who are part of it um, go through some of the motions of, of the physical empowerment? When, when did that become a, a keystone for you? That was pretty late in the process because originally Fight Back was supposed to be a documentary series in 360 degrees that very similar to some ladies, but in different countries and different communities showing different women at different age and fighting for different reasons as well. Um, but we couldn't find financing for this uh, series. Then it transformed mm. into a, a feature film, non-VR, non flatty as we call them, uh, documentary feature. Uh, same here, we couldn't find financing for it. We're actually still trying. I'm, I'm, I still hope to bring that story to life through a, in a feature documentary. It's, we, we actually went to Kenya and we shot a little teaser for the project. So hopefully one day, you know. But then um, about a year and a half ago, um, maybe two years ago, actually, um, I had that idea of transforming that story into a virtual reality, quote-unquote, game. Hmm. Um, I, had, uh, I, I called it at the time the Beat Saber of self-defense because I, had, I loved Beat Saber. I had so much fun in Beat Saber. I was like, this is building up, you know, first of all, I'm working out and it's, it's improving my reflexes, etc. I was like, what if we can use VR to create muscle memory of actual gesture of self-defense and, 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 and help people, just not by just inspiring them through watching stories of other women, but actually having them learn through the game uh, those, those, those reflexes. And then the idea is to say, if you've, you know, you've, you've played the game, uh, that's all it takes. You know, you, you, that's all it takes to actually go and get properly trained. The game itself is not 
a training in self-defense. That's, that's definitely not what we do. It's just a quick introduction and a very few basic, basic gesture. And then hopefully people will continue to like, get interested in empowerment, self-defense and get trained. Um, I call it a game, but I'm trying not to <laughs> because when I say fight back VR is a game, then it kind of like scare away uh, non-gamers or um, people who are not experienced VR user. Well, really the experience is designed specifically for those people, for the non-gamers, beginners in VR. Um, so, but we use game mechanics, but we don't, we try not to have that idea that fight back is a game. It's, it's one of those things that's, I think, tricky for everyone making immersive experiences to sort of navigate because the only words we have in, in sort of the global language for, oh, you're interacting with this computer thing and it's, and it's, you're not typing and you're not just clicking, you're, you're doing something else. And the only term we ever use for that is like, well, it's, it's like a game, uh, even though it, it, it's not, you're not really, you're not playing it. You know, this isn't, this isn't, you know, trying to rack up a score or anything, but there is, there is that embodiment. There is the, the, the physical interactivity. I'm, I'm really curious about the, the progression of the physicality and, and just sort of, I'm wondering what, who you worked with and, and, and what you drew on to select the, the, the move set that is in here. Uh, what's what's the origin and and what's the the logic of the of of going from sort of a a, a kind of a, a taking space gesture uh, through throwing punches by the end? Sure. Yeah. So that was that was um, a very interesting moment in production. Actually, was specifically like choosing those gestures. So over the course of the production, we did very extensive research on self defense and the gesture and how it works and read a lot of scientific studies about it. We talked to a lot of experts. We have multiple PhD professors in, in, in expert in like gender studies and self-defense specifically uh, that we interviewed and we assembled that like 70 plus pages document of, of research. Um, additionally, uh, I'm a martial artist. I've been most of my life, but self-defense is not the same as martial arts. I want to make this very, very clear because sometimes when we say self-defense, people imagine that we like do flying kicks to the head and they're like, oh, I can't do that. There's no way somebody like me would be able to do that. So self-defense is open and available to anyone, whatever your age or your, 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 your body shape or anything. So we had to also take that into consideration. Uh, I also became, uh, earlier this year, I became a certified self-defense instructor. Um, from an, I got certified by an organization called ESD Global. Um, and all of those research led us to pick those gestures that we have in the game, which uh, the first one is kind of like stage one of self-defense, which is uh, awareness and understanding your boundaries and your private space, your physical private space and where those boundaries are and how to uh, have them be respected and communicated. And so the first gesture is linked to that notion of we deserve the right to, you know, have our private space, physical space be respected by others. Uh, so that first gesture is, is, uh, kind of a training in that sense. The second gesture is a shield. So it's learn how to block uh, an attack. Um, a lot of people, and specifically women, would think that they cannot block or survive a punch. And in, in, the, in Fight Back VR, you get to block uh, very efficiently you know, attacks from those, those shadows. And that really makes you feel it in your body that you have that strength and you have that possibility and that skill in you. Um, the third uh, gesture that you learn is actually fighting back, as we call it, which is uh, in, in the case of our experience is uh, punching. 
as we're using hand tracking. Uh, so your, your hands are tracked in real time. You don't use controllers in the game. Um, but VR headset at the moment do not track legs. So we were not able to do like knees, you know, or kicks. So we focus on punching. So you learn how to find weak points and to uh, launch attack to weak points. And finally, the last gesture we have in the game is what we call the power stance. You know, it's a, it's actually a quite famous stance where you, you know, you you have your leg kind of spread apart and you raise your your fist up in the air like as a, you you do like a, a big star like a big X with your body and you breathe very deeply and that makes you like feel strong and powerful. And so that's the gesture that you use in the game to change scale and you grow. As you do that gesture, you're supposed to kind of like mentally grow and in the VR we actually physically grow with that gesture. So so those are kind of the gesture that we've picked with that uh, trick, uh, as I said earlier, of using hand tracking. So the experience is developed for Oculus uh, slash uh, Meta Quest 2. Uh, and Meta Quest 2 has hand tracking available and enabled. It is not very used at the moment in, in, in games and experience for a very good reason, that it's it's not really ready. It's still a little bit tricky and it's still a little bit difficult to, to, to master. So we tried to find gesture that would work with hand tracking. It was a bit of a challenge. Um, but the game you can also be played with controllers. So sometimes if, if hand tracking doesn't work because the lighting is not good or for whatever reason, then you can always switch to controller and continue the experience. Yeah, the, the, the hand tracking stuff is interesting because like when it works, it really works and it feels seamless and magical. And this isn't just in, in your experience, but like across the board with how they've implemented it. But when it breaks, it just becomes there's like an uncanny valley experience where you're just like oh but that worked a second ago what's what's going on yeah um, so exactly well that's also the reason why here in venice for example we are um with the participant when they do the experience we're with them we talk to them we encourage them we cheer them it's a big it's a very important part of the experience to have an ally with you cheering you on mm. um and 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 also giving you advice when hand tracking become a little bit wacky you know but we found here in venice that when you do that and you stay with the person uh it becomes even the bugs and the wackiness of hand tracking become fun and 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 it, it's it's actually it's like a you know it's like yeah whatever and so very rarely we switch to controller. It might have happened maybe five or six times over the course of the last 10 days. Um, but this is something that we will have to add to the experience before we release it, because the plan is to release it for free on the Oculus App Lab later this year. Um, so we will add that dimension of cheering and, and having a, an ally with you, cheering you on and helping you out in the experience itself. So when people play it, at home alone, they will still have that. I, I love, I love that that's something you've discovered over the course of festival time, uh, adding a dimension. Yeah. It's a giant play test here. You yeah. know, it's, a, it's a world premiere. So, and if you've been in VR, you, you know, that there's so many bugs and, you know, it's, it's just terrifying to release a VR experience in a big festival because you know that, the first couple of days will be just horrible and you're, you're just going to have to make new builds and fix bugs and just so on our case we just improved the inboarding um and 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 learn that staying with the person and cheering them and, and 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 helping them with making a big difference so yeah that's that's our beautiful world premiere slash play tests here in venice so the next thing i'm going to ask about it, it it gets a little bit spoiler territory but you did mention the you know, at the end, you 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 meet your sisters. You you get to know who they who they were uh, before they were stars. Um, I, I guess I'm imagining some of these are figures, uh, historical figures, or even contemporary figures uh, that were part of that research you were doing for 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 the feature length uh, version of this story. Uh, am I right in that? I guess I I'm, I'm curious about the 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 folks you've selected uh to to sort of meet at the end and and i and i also wanted to note that it's just it 
the the really interesting thing uh, mechanically there is because you're using the hand tracking these this moment of encounter you get to have it starts with you taking their hand which is just such kind of profound in the digital sense because you're not using a controller to just be able to like reach out and then make a connection with with a with a figure but yeah uh, i'm 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 curious about how you selected these particular women sure thing yeah it's it's that's one of the that's one of the magical moments with hand tracking is they you know they reach out with their hand and you just get to touch their hand and that's that's something that hand tracking is extremely powerful at um so yeah so uh well over the course of our research for the feature documentary that we're still hoping to shoot one day uh we have identified stories in numerous countries like 10ish countries it was important for us to be going to all continents and you know being like different cultures and different situation and context we don't want people to think that you know women fighting back and getting together and fighting back is just for only specific culture specific countries and specific issues we want to like draw a broader view of the problem and its solution um, and over the course of our research we narrowed down to four countries and four stories and one of them is in kenya and it's the karate grannies uh, the karate grannies are elderly women that live in the slum in nairobi so extremely extreme poverty uh, very very difficult uh, life for those women and what has been happening is they have been targeted by rapists because there's that urban legend that if you rape an elderly woman, you won't get AIDS or something because, you know, they're old. And so they've been bending together, getting together, and decided to learn karate. Uh, <laughs> so imagine a group of 70, 80, sometimes 90 years old, uh, grandma in, 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 in the slum getting together and learning to karate. And since they've been doing so, the, the rate of rape has dropped considerably in, in their neighborhood. It's very efficient at deterring aggressors. So we went there in Kenya right before the pandemic with my producer, Maria Blond uh, Marie Blondio. And we met with them. It was fun. We trained together. Uh, they actually kick my butt. <laughs> they are very strong. <laughs> and um, we got to meet one of them. Her name is Florence. We had a very good connection with, with her. Um, so when we were working on Fight Back VR and we knew we wanted to reveal the true identity of the sisters of your constellation at the end of the experience, we knew that Florence was going to be uh, one of them. But we also wanted to show, like I said, different culture, different continent, and also different moments in time that there's been women, strong women, fighting back and, 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 and pursuing physical empowerments for, for centuries and even, even more than centuries. So, for example, we have uh, Angie Mui. Angie Mui lived in uh, 16th century China and she trained in martial arts, but she struggled with uh was fighting again other men using men's martial arts so she decided to go and create her own martial arts and she did and it's called Wing Chun and it's actually a martial art that is thriving and it's still uh being uh, being passed along today there's millions of people learning Wing Chun still today there is Telesila of Argos Telesila Argos was a poet in ancient Greece uh, and her city of Argos was attacked by the Spartans. We all know the Spartans and how fierce uh, warrior they were. Um, so the army of Argos was defeated by the Spartans, but Telesila assembled all the women from the city. They went on the walls of the city and they defended Argos against the Spartans, which uh, retreated. Um, there is also Captain Lakshmi. She was a doctor in India. And when an India army was created for uh, independence, to fight for independence of India, she joined the army and became a leader of an all-female unit. And after the war, after fighting for her country, she, she became a doctor again and 
continue to take care of the people who needed it. And finally, we have Edith Margaret Garud, who was uh, born in Victorian England, and she was a suffragist, so um, fighting for the right to vote for women. And she also had a jujitsu dojo. Uh, so imagine Victorian lady in, in, in England uh, teaching jujitsu. And so she actually trained a special unit of suffragists because suffragists were uh, under a lot of uh, attack from the police, violent attack. So they, she created kind of a bodyguard unit for the suffragists that she trained in jujitsu. And they, they fought against the police. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so those are the five incredible characters that you meet at the end of Fight Back. But I just want to say that the metaphor of stars uh, in the sky and darkness and shadows is kind of that idea that just as there is billions of stars in the universe, but we can only see so many and most of them are hidden in darkness, there are that much of incredible, strong women that have existed in history. We just pick five, but there is thousands of them you don't see. And so through the course of the VR experience, you get to kind of shine a light, like literally you shine a light on the story of those women, but there is, there are many, many more of them. Well, Celine, it's a, it's a really spectacular piece and I'm glad to know it's going to be releasing wide in the app lab later this year um i hope you're having a good time in venice guiding people through uh and, and enjoying the biennial um anything else we should be keeping our eyes out for uh either with regard to fight back or any of the other projects you might have in the irons in the fire well no i just want to say again that we are going to make it available for free later this year um, so keep an eye out. We have a website, fightbackvr.com, where you can uh, put your email address and we'll keep you posted about when the game is released. And we are trying to assemble financing for Impact Campaign, which is to bring Fightback VR to the communities that need it the most. Uh, for example, women shelters. Um, so those are communities that don't have VR headset, probably don't even know, you know, that experience exists and it's out there. So we want to try to bring it to the people who need it the most. Um, so we are looking for any help and support, uh, that, uh, that we can find. So you can always reach out if you want to help. All right. And the link to fight back is going to be in the show notes. So I encourage everyone to click through and learn more. Celine, thank you for joining us from Venice and uh, looking forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you so much for having me. Once again, I want to thank Andrew and Celine for being our guests on the show this week. Again, you can check out Theater of the Mind in Denver, uh, and it's going to be running through uh, December, if memory is serving me right now. Uh, more on that in a moment. And uh, Venice Immersive is wrapping up this weekend. Uh, I've got a few builds that I need to go check out as well, and so we're going to have some more notes on the festival early next week. And as Celine noted, a fight back should be coming to the App Lab on Oculus. Oops, sorry, MetaQuest. Gonna keep calling it Oculus, man. It's just gonna happen uh, until they change it back. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that should be coming uh, hopefully maybe later this year. We'll see how that rolls out. Denver, Denver, Denver. Um, a lot of you know the Denver Immersive Gathering is coming up November 4th, 5th, and 6th. Uh, this is a event put together by our friends at Immersive Denver, uh, along with our help. Uh, we've helped program some of the, the work in it, including the talk that's going to happen on Friday with the folks behind Galactic Star Cruiser, uh, Anne Morrow Johnson, Sarah Thatcher and Michael Tara Garver uh, giving a, a never before seen talk about uh, how all the immersive bits get put together to make Star Cruiser work. Also going to include a chance for everyone to run around Meowulf's Convergence Station. Uh, and that night, one of the things that's exciting uh, and is definitely exciting me is we're planning a series of affinity dinners. So there's going to be small uh, group 
chances for folks to get together uh, on a topic uh, with some of our special guests uh, pre-programmed in there to help guide and and keep the conversation flowing. Uh, this is a really different kind of intimate gathering of the community uh, from anything we've done before. So not a, not a big conference, but a chance for folks to check out work together. Uh, of course, those who got VIP tickets uh, all got tickets to Theater of the Mind. See, it all ties back in together. Um, and... I'm here to tell you that the VIP tickets are sold out. Uh, in fact, we've only got about 40% of the tickets uh, at all left. So there's still tickets left. There's still a chance. A good number of you uh, have a chance to, to get those tickets. And the standard tickets are really a great deal. But if you wanted to get Theater of the Mind tickets... You're actually still in luck because um, we have a way for those who didn't get to be on VIP. And mind you, VIP means you also get a priority selection on, on everything else, including the affinity dinners and, and your, your festival selections. Uh, but if you didn't get that, then we have a way to buy into the theater of the mind pool uh, through our setup. So uh, you are not out of luck if you are looking to come to Denver and given the lineup, given who's coming through, I get to see the folks uh, who bought tickets. This is going to be a really fun gathering. Uh, there's folks coming in from all over the country. There's folks coming in from Canada. Uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing you all. Uh, you know I've been looking forward to seeing you all for a long time. As I am saying this, uh, we've got 55 days till the event, uh, plus about half a day and actually 55 days, 15 hours, 12 minutes, and 29 seconds as I say this. There's a countdown clock on the thing. Gotta get me one of those. Um, and it's just gonna be... It's going to be a blast. Um, so I say uh, look into it uh, if you haven't already. Uh, I'm looking up right now the uh, the standard tickets. Uh, they were they were $150 uh, just a few weeks ago. Uh, the ticket did go up after Labor Day. It's now $200 for the standard uh, pass. Uh, does not come with uh, fire trucks, uh, which are going through. Uh, but uh there's there's so much stuff going on uh it is definitely worth it we're gonna have some more fun announcements next week there's something brewing in new york uh not a not a conference but a real opportunity uh for folks to maybe catch a show they've been trying to catch is that enough of a hint anyway we got something else coming up uh for you next week um the spooky season newsletter uh, that was originally planned to come out this week. I'm going to, uh, I'm making a decision right now, committing to it right now. We're delaying that one by a week uh, because I want to make sure that I've gotten enough material in there. Also, uh, it was a short work week and it's been really hot. So my brain has not been working, but I will tell you, if you were here in the LA area, I want to give you uh, three things to be on the lookout for right now. Item the first, I just caught this last night, uh, down, it's not in LA, it's down in Anaheim, but Crossroads Escape Games, The Weeping Witch Room. This is a uh, sequel to their seance experience from a few years ago, but now it is like a permanent room there. It, it takes the place of uh, the psych ward game that they had. Just played it last night uh, with a couple of friends. It is absolutely fantastic. Uh, we made it out of there with seconds to spare. Uh, it was, uh, we were only three of us and it's kind of optimal for, for six or so it's crossroads always does an amazing job, but this, this they've topped themselves this time and just an absolutely fantastic, uh, experience. Also, uh, an experience where an actor appears in the room as the titular weeping, witch. And it is creepy as all get out. Uh, just a really, really fantastic, perfect spooky season uh, event. Um, got some jump scares in there. It's a, it's a, it's a wee bit scary, but uh, no contact. So like, you're, you're not going to be made to do anything that, uh, that, that you don't want to do type thing. Um, so there you go. Please uh, do yourself a favor and check it out. It's literally opening today as I'm, I'm recording this. Uh, Another one to check out, our friends at Cricklewood Immersive. Uh, they are doing a show they call 
Boston Bar Bloodsuckers. I'm doing this from memory. Boston Bar Bloodsuckers. Uh, go to a place where everyone knows your fangs. Um, that would be a, a, a bar. Uh, in this case, it's in Burbank. It's happening at the, the Roguelike Tavern. Uh, this also just got announced this week. Uh, kind of a murder mystery vampire sitcom that's going to be happening at the Rogue like a few times during spooky season. And then on the non-spooky season front, uh, Corinne Wick's uh, casting. We're going to have uh, Corinne on the show next week. But casting, which we've had, uh, which keep trying to program into our festival, and then our festival keeps on looking to happen, uh, that show is now been announced. Uh, it's a pay what you can setup, uh, so anywhere between five and twenty dollars. Uh, it's about a twenty minute uh, and change show. It's going to be at Family Arts uh, again. Four dates coming up uh, this month. So that's what's happening in LA uh, next week for the full spooky season spectacular a newsletter. And yeah, I, uh, I hope you find a way to stay cool. Uh, I'm doing what I can without air conditioning. I don't, uh, I got, I, I, I need to do something about that. I think, uh, at least for next year. Um, yeah, that's it for now. Uh, let's do the credits. The associate producer of this podcast is Parker Sella. Music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Special thanks to Shavana Lachlan for voicing our intro and the podcast is, uh, all the other work is me. I'm Noah Nelson. And until next time, I'll see you at the show. Mm-hmm.